Would you like to live a happier, healthier, and more fulfilled life? Cultures from all over our planet have been addressing that concern for thousands of years, and their answers can help you in your life today. Welcome to The Sweet Spot, where healing, spirituality, and culture meet. Join anthropologist and healer Robert Better as he introduces you to healing and spirituality in world cultures. Here's the host of your show, Robert Better. Welcome, listeners. I'm back today with Erica Buena Flor, who is a curandera. She is a writer, uh, an author of three awesome books on the topic of curanderismo. We're here today to continue where we left off in our last session, where she gave us a, an overview of her life history. And today we're going to delve a little bit deeper into the teachings of curanderismo, how she learned them, and a little bit more about her teachers, her mentors that she described to us in our first session. So Erica, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So what can you tell us about this, this education that you underwent? Well, let's see. I had, um, I had various teachers, but I had four principal teachers, mentors. Um, one of them, as I had mentioned, um, is Don Tomas. And he was over in the Tulum region. And this was back in the days, there was a lighthouse over Tulum. This was back in the days before the, the gentrification of Tulum. Now Tulum is a very different place. I mean, when I started going there, it was a sleepy little town where you would see a few surfers, you know, Western surfers, but there, weren't, there just weren't that many um, foreigners there yet. So when I arrived, um, the gentleman that introduced me to Don Tomas, he had purchased... Um, land that apparently later turned out to be, uh, he found out was Ejido land, which was indigenous land. So he had to actually give up that property. But anyway, that's another story. So he introduced me to Don Tomas and um, it, was, it was very interesting because Don Tomas, I, I could tell he had been exposed to a lot of uh, Westerners. You know, he knew, and, and, you know, cause the area he was in that were, that he had clients that were Westerners he had clients that were that were locals there too, um, and he knew Yucatec Mayan. Um, he taught me. He had his own little garden. He taught me a lot about the properties of herbs. He would send me to the mercado to get herbs and teach me about them and teach me different ways of doing limpias, um, and just was a very gregarious young young man. You know, just yeah. And then um, Barbara, Barbara, she identified herself with Yucatec Mayan traditions, but also Nahuatl traditions. And Nahuatl traditions, you know, and it, it depends on who you ask what that means, Nahuatl. You know, for her, it meant um, that she, because she was, she was from DF, from Mexico City, and she was familiar with Central Mexican indigenous customs and curaderismo traditions from that area and had also been exposed to uh, Mayan traditions as well. And she knew a lot about um, different acupressure points, you know, also Western too, and also how to do work, um, various kinds of, of, of limpias, but a lot of things with body work and a lot of things with different kinds of baños, baths, and how to work with the bath with the herbs in that, that way. And she helped me a lot when I would come and I would come in just 
really toxic because I was already an attorney by that time too. Um, well, well, when I later on I became an attorney, but I remember when I was already working as an attorney. It was I just remember one time I came to her and I just had rashes all over my body. So I was just it was just a really toxic case that I was working on. Um, and she that's when she began really teaching me how to work with healing the body on a physical level and a soul level. Um, so that happened for about seven years. And I did work with a couple people who actually had work in Temascales at where, but it wasn't, it wasn't continuous. I just, every time I would, you know, I, I had an opportunity to go on a Temascal, I, I just started talking to them and asking them questions and try to learn as much as I could. <laughs> um, so Barbara and Tomas were my first two mentors for about seven years. And then after my accident, um, I wasn't able to go back there for quite some time. I wasn't able to go back there for, I would say, about a year, a year and a couple months. And, um, and when I got back to, when I got back to the Yucatan, I went actually to Bacalar and I went with a group. I went with a, it was a, it was a, it was a spiritual retreat that I went. It was with Sherry Rosenthal. And I went with her, and that's when I met my second set of mentors. One of them was Malina, and she was working, she was doing massage also. She was doing, uh, she was just a very eclectic teacher as well. Uh, she, she actually was also trained in Qigong as well. And she identified, she also, she was from New Mexico, so she knew Native American traditions as well. Uh, she was familiar with Nahuatl traditions. She had worked with, um, Peotito in central Mexico. So she, she was, she was a very um, informed and very, very wonderful, amazing teacher, Malina. And um, then she actually later on um, introduced me to Don Fernando. Don, Don Fernando was a very different um, gentleman. He was, a, <laughs> he had lived in Yucatec, um, he lived in the Yucatan all his life. He was the caretaker of the sacred site of Cojulich. And he, he, he actually, Malina, she worked with, so they all worked with different people, you know, and, and that reflected a lot in their practice too, and how they approached me and how they worked with me. Barbara worked with a lot of the locals and she worked with a lot of people. Um, this is going back, you know, before my accident. So Barbara worked with a lot of people from, um, a lot of Westerners from Puerto Aventuras, you know, and it's different in how, in their, their approaches in their style and what they say. Um, and whereas Don Tomas worked with more locals and worked with some Westerners. And Malina worked with a lot of different people, mainly a lot of foreigners, because that's where, you know, she was in Bacalar. And um, she worked with a lot of people, you know, also locals too, of course, and, and, and Mexicanos as well. Whereas Don Fernando principally worked with the locals there, you know, the people in the surrounding area. Some people that were referred to him, you know, some foreigners, um, but mainly locals. And Don Fernando taught me a lot of things about how to read eggs, how to do velaciones. So they all had their own different types of practices and insights and healing and all just phenomenal teachers and wonderful mentors that came to me at the time that I needed them. Wonderful. So Of these two, well, actually, since we're on the topic of, of velaciones, 
do you see that as a pre-contact art? Absolutely. Belasunas are, it's candle work, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. um, and yeah, that was something, I mean, the fire uh, was considered a deity. Uh, he was one of the fire deities and same thing with the Maya, same thing with Central Mexico. He was very honored and um, provided limpias, provided divination work. And they worked with them a lot in the great feast the little feast, um, it was the, the months when they celebrated the deceased, the ancestors. Mm -hmm. And they did work a lot of work with, with candles, um, with fire, um, also in the temples and the burial sites. That was something definitely pre-contact. So, good, okay. So let's, let's talk about that. Um, in your, in your book, Sacred Energies of the Sun and Moon, you talk about shamanic rites of curanderismo. And I wanted to, I wanted to touch on this subject of uh, shamanism. In some literature, it is said that the healing practices of Mesoamerica should be considered shamanism, and some have argued that it should not be considered um, shamanism. And I'm wondering, I mean, I obviously know which way you weigh in on that debate, but uh, how it's, it's curious how some people use that term to describe it and some don't. So what's, how do you, how do you kind of evaluate it and look at that issue? Well, I think I want to be coming forward as a Chicana feminist on the standpoint. Uh -huh. um, and this is one of the things is that if we don't understand that terms, are not something that are constructed. And if we allow terms to just be constructed and we accept their definition, then we're fools. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the first thing is I would ask, well, how does someone then interpret and how do they define shamanism? And that would be also from a standpoint as, as my practice as an attorney too, right? My, my training as an attorney, how is that defined? You know, if, if it's defined, because I, I always define, Anytime I define anything in my book and I change it, you know, I say in this context, I'm using the word shamanic. Um, I use the word shaman because mm -hmm. I don't know the exact term of that practitioner because there were hundreds of different types of curanderics in ancient Mesoamerica. They did various kinds of things, various kinds of specialties. When I don't have the specific term for what they did, I identify them as shamans and that's how I use it. Um, and that's the way I, and I use it and, and I define it in that way. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's very important for us to define it and to understand that terms are something that are defined and can be appropriated and reappropriated. And it is, it is up to us to be critical to assert, to discern where that is coming from and what the definition of that is. So, I mean, I know the definition that, that I'm thinking of, um, for shaman. And for example, in what is now the United States and in Canada, among indigenous people, my experience has been um, that people really have a, a, have a hard time with the use of shaman, that when, when uh, people from outside of a particular native culture refer to somebody as a shaman, you know, very often that's considered an insulting thing because it's taking this term from another culture and applying it 
within a different culture. So that was the that was my reason for for bringing it up. I think it's one of those things. I feel it's one of those things that we have to be respectful. If someone doesn't want to be identified in a certain way, we respect that. Yeah. Like, simple. We're not gonna. I'm not gonna. If someone says to me, "I want. I don't want. I don't like the term Chicano. I don't like the term Chicanx. I don't like the under. I don't like the word Latinx. I want to be Latino or Latina. I don't like Latinx. I don't like this. I'm gonna respect that. I'm mm-hmm. not gonna sit there and argue with them and say, "Well, we should be allowing ourselves to transcend binary genders." Or I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna sit there and have a conversation with them about that. You right. know, if someone wants to be. You know, I'm a. I'm a witch. I'm a bruja. I'm a bruja. I'm gonna honor that. I'm gonna mm-hmm. respect that. 100%. And I also would like to, I would ask the same of all of us that we honor and respect everyone, you know, and that we honor and respect and we allow ourselves because the minute that we start accepting certain terms and this is what it is and, and, and start viewing them as static, we start reinforcing status quos and we start reinforcing forms of colonization, forms of, sorry, that's my doctor. <laughs> He's agreeing with me. He's like, yes, mommy, that's right. <laughs> he's dreaming. I don't know. Figura, figura, wake up, honey. Sorry about that. Um, he's a, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's certain things that that's part of the whole process of colonization is, is saying, this is what it is. I'm in power. So you accept my term. Mm-hmm. You know, it, no, I don't think so. If someone says, this is how I want to be identified. I'm going to respect that. If I say I want to be identified that way, I, I hope I'm respected. <laughs> so, so let's let's um, let's unpack that term, shaman, a little bit, um, because in in the literature, shamanism applies to a particular type of healer. So, for example, uh, normally we would not consider somebody who just uses herbs to be a shaman. You know, we think of a a shaman as somebody who is in direct communication with the spirit world. Would, would you agree with that? Sure. Okay, so so in your experience, I mean, I know, for example, some of the people who have, have questioned whether... Uh, whether okay, hold on, let me, so you said just that, right? So I would say yes, and then yeah. some. <laughs> well, the, the reason that I said just herbs is because somebody can certainly be an herbalist and also do other aspects of curanderismo. They could be, you know, a practitioner can, can do a number of different things. So that's why I asked if somebody who is just an herbalist, if you would agree that somebody who's just an herbalist is not a shaman. Not necessarily. Not necessarily because, um, I mean, I've met, uh, Don Tormas was very much a yerbarero. I mean, he didn't identify himself. When I, I asked him, I said, are you a yerbarero? And he said, no, I'm not. And I didn't understand because he knew every plant that there was that I ever, I mean, he would, he would say that does that, this does that, this does that. And I've also met one gentleman who was over in Belize, who we, we did a tour of, he did a tour down, um, uh, he, we, we did a tour and he named off every single plant, what it did, the healing properties, how to work with it, et cetera, et cetera. But he also knew how to do divination work with the plants. He also would know what was the spiritual malady of the person from the plant itself. Um, so it, it just depends on what kind, because we can't assume that just an herbalist just does this, because sometimes 
they not sometimes they usually connect with the spirit essence of the plants and that is definitely walking into non-ordinary realms and working with the non-ordinary realms so we it's not something that it's that easy to define it this is this this is that this is that we need to ask the people themselves and stop putting people into boxes and assume something like that because that that is so traditional and you know structuralist anthropology anthropology you know, that's what I, 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 did, I abhorred about anthropology. It's like, I love my anthropology teachers that were like post-structuralist, breaking walls down, asking questions, critical, because you have to, you have to ask the person, what is your practice and what do you do and how do you do it? Point well taken. So let's, let's break it down then uh, beyond the use of these terms and putting somebody into a category. Uh, what is your experience, particularly in the Yucatan, about the ways of entering into these non-ordinary realities? Well, you know, it, we did it um, in the Tamascal with song, with mm -hmm. drumming, um, with herbs, with recognizing the cardinal spaces. That was one of the ways, you know. Um, and depending on what setting, of course, too. Um, we did it with intention, with breath work. Breath work was a very big thing. Understanding um, the acupressure points in the body and journeying with that. So, you know, it depends. It's, it's, a, it's a lot very much. And sometimes we are the non-ordinary realm as well because we are the access mundi. It's not about entering into. It's about recognizing our infinite potential. Mm -hmm. So, I noticed that in, in your books, uh, there are a number of times that you kind of describe crossover practices. So, breath work would be an example. In other words, we find it within Kurenderismo, but readers who are familiar with, uh, with other cultural practices will recognize this term breath work and have maybe a different cultural meaning attached to it. So what, what did it mean in the work that you did? What, what was the kind of breath work that you experienced with your teachers? Well, in the breath work, it, um, it still stems from the ancient understanding that the breath is something that contains sacred essence energy that cleanses us, revitalizes us. It's, um, it's chuyel, it's tonali. It's something that when it's something that we can put in our hearts, we can, we can set the intention of moving the breath into our hearts. Um, and it's, it's very much about journeying. And it's definitely, you know, this is, an, this is something you can see in a lot of the codices too. The air volume, it's going into the nose. The, you know, the air volume, it's going out of the nose, coming from a flower, the understanding of the air being something sacred and imperial and being soul energy. The other, the other crossover that I wanted to mention is um, the chakras. And I've heard a lot of talk about the Quequeos and how they correspond to the chakras that we might find in India. Um, and I'm just curious to know if any of your teachers talked specifically about the Quequeos 
about the energy centers um, from a Mesoamerican point of view? Yeah, yeah, and uh, Incurandarismo soul retrieval. I mean, you know, they, they, where the energies were centered, where soul energies are centered, that's, that's the way we look at it. It's one of those things where we look at it that it's in our hair, it's in our head, it's in our forehead. Um, you still see them in Chichen Itza. You see the, the warriors with flowers on their foreheads. <laughs> you know, these military warriors with beautiful little flower, beautiful large flowers on their foreheads. That was very much with the third eye and associated and understood that that was where soul essence energy was concentrated. You know, where it's coming out of the mouth, where, you know, a sacred essence energy is coming in and into the mouth, you know, as the breath as going into our lungs, our throat, and it's existing there. The teoya, the heart, you know, being a space where there was sacred essence energy. And it's, it's, there wasn't just one, because if you ask a Kiche Maya, where you ask somebody from the Yucatan, there's, or, you know, Totsil or Tetzal Maya, they're, or indigenous person, they wouldn't necessarily identify with Tetzal Maya, but Tetzal or Totsil person, they would, um, they would identify it something similar but they might have a different understanding of it where it's maybe in the stomach, where it's in the liver, um, but there are some uh, definite, there's some underlying, um, similar, well, not, I wouldn't say similarities, but tendencies where you see throughout different tribes in Mesoamerica, still even to this day. And my teachers definitely did that and recognized that and taught me about that. Great. So, can you can you kind of address the the similarities and the differences between the way chakras are understood uh, from the the perspective of Hinduism, for example? I don't know. I, I, although I have taught a class when I was in, in grad school on Hinduism, one little section. I don't know if I would say I'm I'm that well informed to say the differences. Uh huh. Hinduism. <laughs> Just being honest here, I'm not, you know, not a practicing Hindu, so I, I wouldn't be able to really say. Yeah. I, I know the difference is that the, the, I know in Hinduism, it's thought of as a portal, you know, vortex. And I don't know if I've ever seen anything that's, that looks like a spiral in the artwork, but who knows? Maybe there's a, the spiraling of Pocopelli, you know, the spiral. Maybe there's some, I don't know if I can really pinpoint the differences and say, this is different, this is the same. You know, yeah. um, there's definitely that I can say that what you do see is the understanding that sacred essence energy was concentrated in the places that I identify in my book, Urandarismo Soul Retrieval, you know, that it was definitely in the head, in the forehead, in the throat, in the heart, and in the abdominal region. I, uh, I just wrapped up an interview with Soren Shrestha, who is, uh, he's famous in the world of Himalayan singing bowls and grew up in Nepal. And I was shocked by how similar uh, this cleansing ritual was that his mother did and his grandmother did um, in their village. In this little tiny remote village in Nepal, they use a handful of rice, of uncooked rice, and they touch it to each of the chakras and then run it off the toes. And after the, the entire ceremony is over, they're, they're chanting mantras as they do it. 
And when the entire ceremony is over, they scatter the rice to the four directions. And I thought, wow, how amazingly similar to limpia ceremonies. So that, that's kind of my thinking behind this as well as to, um, you know, the, there are so many times that we find this global language being used in curanderismo, um, maybe, maybe universal understandings that we're giving different uh, cultural terms to. Well, we're all definitely tapping into something cosmic, something beautiful, something that is a grid of information, you know, an energy lines of information that you do as a shaman, that you do as a curandera. You, you work with these energies and definitely see it, definitely communicate with it, absolutely. And to say that doesn't exist is, is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, this would be a perfect time for us to end our second session, Erica, and looking forward to our next session. And I thank you for being with us a second time. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for being with us as well. This has been Healing and Spirituality in World Cultures with Robert Vetter. Thanks for listening. Please rate, subscribe, and share with everyone you know who might benefit from these messages. Until next time, remember, be kind and loving to yourself and others. Together, we can heal ourselves and help build a better world.